series on the book of Isaiah. Now, unlike some other series, we will not go every verse by verse or chapter by chapter, but summarize each chapter as we faithfully go through them, and then concentrate on those key verses and key lessons in each section. First, an introduction tonight. Isaiah. We can open our Bibles to Isaiah for an introduction, although we will go through chapter 1, Lord willing, next Sunday. Tonight's message is entitled, Meet Isaiah and his book as well. What do we know about his book? Well, it's the second largest book in the Bible, second only to Psalms. And it says here, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos and so forth. So we receive this from God. It's inspired. It's got 66 chapters, which is interesting because you see a certain change, chapter 40 to the end, kind of a change in tone. Um, so there are 39 and then 27. Does that sound familiar? 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It's one way to remember. It's also the first of the three major prophets. And the other two would be Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Major not so much in terms of importance, but of size. Because then after that, and after Daniel, you get the 12 minor prophets, which are much, much smaller. It's the largest book of prophecy in the Bible. But it does have a little bit of history. It sets the stage for some of the nations that God is rebuking. And then there's a little bit about Isaiah's call and Hezekiah. But mostly it's prophecy. Hebrew scholars have said it's um, probably uh, outstanding in its literary style of Hebrew. It's very eloquent and poetical as opposed to some others that are very blunt with a much limited vocabulary. It's got the largest vocabulary of any book except possibly Psalms. Comparable to, um, in the New Testament, John's Gospel and his epistles, uh, shorter sentence, limited vocabulary. But then when you come to Luke and Hebrews, it's very eloquent, indicating it was written by a more educated person, Dr. Luke. Doctor is usually very well educated. Uh, and so perhaps Isaiah had been well taught and had a wider vocabulary because God inspired the Bible by using the vocabulary and the style of those that he inspired. Did you know the New Testament quotes this more than any other Old Testament prophet? And second, only to the quotations from Psalms. And so it's, uh, it was obviously very well known by the apostles and by the Lord Jesus. Now, who wrote this? Isaiah, end of argument. Obvious. But, as you may know, so-called liberal pseudo-scholars, almost to a man, woman, and child, will deny that and say, no, it wasn't Isaiah. Uh, maybe there was someone Isaiah, called Isaiah, but they'll say, well, it was more than one. They'll say, one person that may have been Isaiah wrote chapters 1 to 39, and then another, second Isaiah... <coughs> wrote the next few chapters, and then a third Isaiah. And it's because they downplay inspiration, and they like to see errors where errors are not to be found. 
And also, if you scratch or find beneath the surface, they really don't believe in accurate prophecy of future events. And that's what that fills Isaiah, these things to come to pass. And so they'd say, well, this was written after these events had happened, and it's kind of like a, a, a retrospective playback. And, um, but we know that God can predict things, particularly, as we'll see, there's a prediction of a king named Cyrus, who wasn't Israeli, wasn't Babylonian, he was Persian, and very few people would name that. So it names him in particular 200 years beforehand. And they said, well, that could never happen. Of course it could. God knows the future. So there's not first, second, and third Isaiah. And here's where I would argue with them on a scholarly basis. I'd say, okay, pretend this is a court of law. You put forth your case that it was not written by just one Isaiah. Okay, uh, do you have any manuscript evidence? Uh, no, because all the Hebrew manuscripts of Isaiah put it together. They don't chop it up. Secondly, the ancient versions like the Latin, the Greek Septuagint, the Arabic, even the Coptic and other ones, they don't divide it up and say there are three authors. The largest of the Dead Sea Scrolls is an unbroken manuscript of Isaiah. It doesn't chop it up either. Josephus explicitly said it was written all by Isaiah. All the ancient Jewish writings, like the Talmud, the Tosefta, the Mishnah, and these other ones, say, oh no, it was all Isaiah. The early Christian fathers for centuries, the medieval writers, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, Protestants, until about the year 1750, it began to be challenged. Most of all, the Lord Jesus explicitly said it was Isaiah. That's in John 12, 37 to 41. And the name Isaiah is also quoted in other places in the New Testament, even a couple of places in the Old Testament after Isaiah wrote. So I'm with all of these. But the main thing is God said it was Isaiah, not someone pretending to be Isaiah and then two or three or whatever after that. Case closed. So who was he? It says he's uh, the son of Amos. That's not Amos, it's Amos. And sometimes a person's name in the Bible has special significance. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh is salvation. And that's a major theme in this book. By the way, it's usually translated Isaiah, but uh, the old King James will call it Isaiah. Same person, like Elias or Elijah. Chapter 6 records his call. He said, well, what about the previous five chapters? Uh, this could be his second call. In any case, he received visions, dreams, uh, not angel visits, but God did inspire him. Uh, his call is recorded in chapter 6. He prophesied for a long period of time, mainly in Jerusalem, addressing Judah, which was the southern kingdom. We'll get back to that. And um, he prophesied under four different kings. Some of them reigned for a very long time. What do we know about his family? Well, chapter 8, verse 3 mentions his wife was a prophetess. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean she was full time, because she could have prophesied just once or twice. She is not the other prophetess that's mentioned in the Old Testament about this time, Huldah. We know that they had two sons, 
And um, their names meant something because God said, name them this. And the second one has an interesting name. It's the longest name in the Bible. Mahershalal Hashbaz. Kind of rolls off your tongue, doesn't it, Jack? Mahershalal Hashbaz. And I forgot what the other one's name is. Second Chronicles 32, 32 says that Isaiah wrote a biography of Hezekiah, who was king during part of this time. But that book has been lost. It's interesting. The Bible will mention books that we don't have anymore. And nobody claims to have them. There's the book of Jasher, the book of the wars of the Lord and things like this. These were lost. They were not inspired. Occasionally, archaeologists have found some of these old books, but there's over 20 that are still missing. That just tells us they were not inspired. But the biography of Hezekiah is not the same thing as the vision of Hezekiah, of, of Isaiah, even though Hezekiah is mentioned in it. Okay, that's the what and the who, now the when. Isaiah served God from 739 to 686 B.C. So it was either written toward the end of that time period, and that's a long ministry, or that it was written in stages, and that might account for the change of style from chapter 39 to 40, but again, that's only supposition, and so um, we, we can't argue much on that. But he did have that long ministry, 739 to 686. Remember, B.C., the numbers are counting backwards. He was contemporary with at least two other biblical prophets, Hosea, and Micah, and he died in 681 B.C. Um, remember, that would be just a few years uh, after he had been serving as a prophet. And there's an interesting probability he's mentioned anonymously in the New Testament concerning his death. Hebrews 11 mentions these great heroes that did this and did that, and some of them were martyred. And in verse 37, it says, one was sawn in two. Not like these, you know, fake magician things sawing a woman in half. And a lot of the ancient Jews said that was Isaiah. That he was uh, arrested and um, persecuted. And that they put him in a hollow log and two men sawed the log and him in half. It could have been Isaiah. But again, that's only a possibility or probability. Years ago, um, someone translated Calvin's, John Calvin's sermons on Isaiah 53 and gave it the interesting title, The Gospel of Isaiah. And then about 10 years ago, I preached a Christmas sermon on the gospel according to Isaiah, pointing out the messianic prophecies in this book, concentrating on the, the birth predictions. Isaiah predicted both the first and the second comings of Jesus. And you've heard the analogy that the Old Testament prophets were kind of looking far off in the distance. Some things near, but when it came to Christ, it was far off in the distance. And so they'd go back and forth saying, well, here's what he's going to do, and that's what he's going to do. And they didn't see that it would be in two stages, what we call the first and the second coming. And it, it's been compared to if you're out in the desert, let's say in Utah or Nevada, and you look off in the distance and seeing a mountain range, it looks like one mountain range. But you get close to it and go through a pass, you find out it's two mountain ranges with a valley in between. And so it was like that, seeing the first and second coming of Jesus far off in the distance, 
And the ancient rabbis said, well, for example, in Isaiah, how can he be the great king if he's going to die? How can he be Messiah? And it was a mystery because they didn't see the intervening period. What are some of the prophecies of the Messiah? Chapter 7, 14, the virgin birth. The, the virgin shall be with child. Chapter 9, verse 6, his deity. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. And of course, chapter 3, the whole chapter is about his death. Chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon him, and Jesus himself quotes that in Luke chapter 4. Uh, chapter 28, verse 16, refers to him as that stumbling stone that the Jews would trip over, and that's mentioned in the New Testament. There's another interesting one. Chapter, excuse me, I lost my place here. Um, chapter 50, verse 6, Isaiah speaking on behalf of this suffering servant Messiah says that they pulled out my beard. That's what the Romans did when they tortured Jesus before they crucified him. It's an interesting one. Tells us Jesus had a beard, and that must have really hurt. And there's some other ones. For example, 9.2 mentions that uh, he would be in Galilee. And there are a few others, but those are the main ones for the gospel according to Isaiah. Okay, here's an outline, and I wish I had that whiteboard up here, but I'll just give it to you. You can find similar outlines if you have a study Bible. Chapters 1 to 12, these are prophecies against Judah, the southern kingdom, because of their apostasy and idolatry. And then chapters 13 to 23, prophecies against the pagan nations for their idolatry. Chapters 24 to 27, promises to Israel, conditional upon their repentance. And then chapters 28 to 35, warnings to Israel if they do not repent. It's like I'm going to punish you and I'm going to punish you again because I've given you more blessings and more warnings. Then in the middle of the book, chapters 36 to 39, the story of Hezekiah, the good king, and how God protected him and Judah from the Assyrian invasion that had conquered the northern kingdom. And yet God spared the southern kingdom and Hezekiah also tells us the story of how God gave more years to his life even though he was on his deathbed. That's going to be interesting when we get to that in a few weeks. Chapters 40 to 48, promises to Israel coming from the Lord and emphasizing in those chapters, God alone is the God, the true God, besides whom there is no other, just thunders over and over again, biblical monotheism. I am the Lord, there is none other besides me. As if to say, why follow after these false gods? I am God, I am your God. Chapters 49 to 57, kind of the heart of the book, the promise of this suffering servant. And as we'll see, sometimes it's referring to Israel as the servant, because it says, Jacob my servant. But other times it's clearly not the tribe of Israel or, or of Jacob, but some other individual, and we know from the New Testament, that's talking about Jesus, the suffering servant. Last section, verse, uh, chapters 58 to 66, Again, God promises a few promises to the pagans. There'll be promises of blessing to some of the pagans, but mainly future restoration of Israel and God's glory worldwide. So there's a 
very brief outline. Now let's get the setting. Much of it at the beginning has to do with good King Uzziah, such as in chapter 6, as in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What do we know about Uzziah? He reigned for 52 years, and then in chapter 6, he dies. Now, I remember a PH student at Dallas Seminary preaching on this, and he had an interesting observation. He says, 52 years. There were people that were born and grew old in that time period, and they never knew anybody else as king. And he said, this is like four times the length of the longest term of any of our presidents. And he said, some of you old enough to remember Franklin Roosevelt. He served, he was elected four times, didn't serve out the last one, but he said, there are people that said, well, Roosevelt's the only president we ever knew for the last so many years. Same thing in Great Britain. Margaret Thatcher served for something like 13 years. But imagine, 52 years. That would be from approximately 790 to 739 B.C. What else do we know? Well, under Uzziah in this time period, Judah prospered materially. They were safe. God had protected them from the Assyrians. They prospered materially, but not spiritually. Oh, there's a barrel full of lessons there. America has, has prospered materially, and God has blessed us in the past, first and second great awakenings, but what about today? We're rapidly becoming not just non-Christian or post-Christian, but anti-Christian, even though we're prospering materially. What about Uzziah? God struck him with leprosy, 2 Kings 15, 3 and 4 says, because he usurped the office of the priest and went into the temple to offer incense and God struck him with leprosy, just like a few other cases. That serve as a warning. And then another great king arose, Hezekiah. Remember that there were often on good kings in the southern kingdom. Brother Vic, I could say that was the Bible Belt. And that the southern kingdom of any nation tends to be more... I could say that, but I'm not. But I just did. But there were no good kings up north, but there were a few good ones that experienced a degree of revival. Because why? Because they were better? No. Because that was the tribe of Judah, tie in with David, and especially Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And God had made special promises to them. So uh, Hezekiah reigned for 29 years up to 686. Now that's a very important date we're going to mention in a minute. Also we're told that story where God extended his life and he first came through Isaiah and said, set your house in order, you're going to die. But he repented, sought the Lord, and God said, I'm going to give you so many more years. He was a good king. And God used him to bring in a large measure of revival and to stop all the idolatry. But then the next king brought it back again. And then another king came along that threw it out. Isaiah kept warning about punishment and exile if Judah did not repent. Now Judah, think of the 12 tribes. Now Levi did not get a portion of land. They were the priestly tribe. And then the big tribe up north, the tribe of Joseph, was so big it got cut in half. And that's why it's called Ephraim and Manasseh. Those were the sons of Joseph. But even bigger than that was the tribe of Judah, the Messianic tribe, the tribe of the first great kings, such as David and Solomon. 
that Saul wasn't such a great king. And he was from Benjamin, not from Judah. But God had made special promises to Judah. And, uh, and so it prospered, but it kept going back into idolatry. And so Isaiah keeps getting back to warning them, as if to say, your brethren up north, they're in exile up in Assyria, and the Babylonians uh, are going to conquer them. They're about to conquer the southern kingdom. Hear ye the word of the Lord. But they didn't want to listen. They said, shut up, Isaiah. You keep blowing this trumpet. Get out of here with you and your silly trumpet. But Isaiah kept faithfully warning them, saying, God's going to punish you. Kind of like a parent saying, that's one. Don't, let, don't make me count to three. And God is patiently giving them time to repent, just like he gives us time to repent. And uh, he did delay the judgment, just like he extended Hezekiah's life. But then in a later prophet, uh, Jeremiah, the next of the major prophets, it, it was more than a warning. He's saying God calls for repentance. Of course, they threw him in jail. They said, what are you doing saying submit to the Babylonians? Are you a spy or traitor? But what God was saying through Jeremiah after Isaiah you need to repent, but even if you do, you're going to get conquered because you've gone too far. It's, you're going to get punished. It's kind of like a child that's misbehaved so bad, mama's going to say, even if you apologize, I'm still going to spank you to teach you a double lesson. And that's what would happen with Israel. So Isaiah's warning them, if they did not repent, there's going to be punishment. And they're saying, How can you? we're prospering. Apply that to us today. Supposedly the strongest military force in the, in the world, best economy. China's rapidly gaining on us, and so is India. And so, you know, if you say, well, God could punish America, they say, why? We're, we're Americans. We like baseball and apple pie and, you know, Fourth of July. Yeah, and abortion and homosexuality and a lot of other decadent things. But God did delay the punishment. Just like during Jonah's ministry, God said through him to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, 40 days and you're going to be overthrown. And then lo and behold, they repented and it got delayed, but not permanently. Same thing with Judah under the time of Isaiah. It got delayed, but not canceled. Um, God gives people time to repent, 2 Peter 3, 9 says. And then another good king arose, Josiah, the Best king since David and Solomon combined. And then what happened? The pattern back and forth, back and forth. Good king, bad king. Good, good king. Bad, bad king. Manasseh, the worst of them all, even worse than Ahab. And though, interesting, interesting detail, and I think it's in Chronicles, after his terrible life, Manasseh repented in prison, but it was like Jeremiah was saying, that's too little and too late. And eventually the Babylonians did conquer the southern kingdom. Okay, let's look at some of the themes in Isaiah's book. Remember the setting, northern Israel, after their civil war, went into apostasy and idolatry more than the southern kingdom. And so they were conquered by the Assyrians, who lived just north of the Babylonians. And then gradually Judah followed the bad example of their northern brethren. And yet they had a few good kings, but um, 
they were conquered by the Babylonians, although God had protected them. God said, nope, I'm going to let them come in. And the Babylonians had conquered the Assyrians. They took over the northern kingdom of Israel, and now they take over the south. And they said, we've got it all. Read the book of Daniel, and it talks about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And yet God promised that he would bring Judah back from the exile. And an interesting thing, it's just like in the Gospels, Jesus said so and quoted the Old Testament saying, Messiah will have to die. And they just couldn't figure that out. How could Messiah die? Duh, it's in Isaiah 53. So when he died, they were brokenhearted. Read Luke chapter 24. How could he be? He died. But they also forgot the prophecies that he would rise. We often forget and we get discouraged. This principle applies to Israel. They didn't believe that God would send them into exile. And then when they were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, they had forgotten that God said he would bring them back and restore them. Don't we often forget God's warnings and his promises? We need to believe. And to believe, we need to know what they are. And then there would be future blessings of Israel, just like the two mountain ranges of the Messiah, there would be different blessings for Israel, some in the near future. The restoration, coming back from the exile. But other ones would be much, much later. Romans 11 promises this, and actually alludes to Isaiah and some other places, a future not so much regathering to the land, although we've seen that in the last hundred years, but that Israel at large will turn to Jesus as Messiah. That has not yet happened, but it will, and that would be the fulfillment of the great promise to the Israelites. What is the main theme of this book? The Lord alone is the one true God. All others are idols. That's it in a nutshell. For example, 25 times Isaiah uses the phrase, the Holy One of Israel. And that phrase is used only five other times in the Old Testament. He is the Holy One. Holy, holy, holy. And he is the one and only true God. Briefly, let's say a few things about Isaiah's prophecies. As I said, some for the near future and some for the far future. And those were prophecies both for the Jews and Judah, very little about the north, but also concerning the other nations, Edom and Syria and these other ones, even Egypt. And so some of these were near events that came to pass. And we find this pattern amongst the prophets, and you see it in some of the historical books, that God said, prophesy something for the near future in your lifetime so when it comes to pass, that will authenticate your prophecies and it be a guarantee of the ones later to come to pass. And that's what some of the latter prophets would say. Look, God told you this would happen. It did happen. Can't you believe him for this other thing that has not yet happened? Uh, oh, there are a lot of lessons for us. Sometimes we doubt, is God going to get me out of this? Um, don't you remember he got you out of something like this before when you were very sick? Well, you needed work. Family problems, don't you remember? Uh, yes. God doesn't break his word. The fact that he fulfills some in the immediate future is promised that he will fulfill the rest. God doesn't lie. He knows the future. Never breaks a promise. Next, the prophecies were both to Israel and to pagan nations. Notice in the outline, went back and forth. 
Just like in the New Testament, Paul said, I preach the gospel first to the Jews, but not only to the Jews. Remember in the book of Acts, the Jews basically rejected Jesus and told Paul to hit the road, you're a traitor. And so he says, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And thank God that they did. We're Gentiles. And so there's that same thing, you know, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I got to throw this in. It's not my notes, but an interesting turn of phrase. Vic, this would be a Spurgeonic anecdote. <laughs> Spurgeon. Uh, I knew a, a, a dear brother who was a Greek-American, Georgi Georgitopoulos, I mean, lar large name. And he shortened it to George George. And then I knew another one, um, uh, Georgi Gatgunas, and he shortened that to George Gattis. But he was a Greek-American Christian, and he married a Jewish-American Christian. And he used to say, well, to the, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. <laughs> and they had a child, and I said, you could teach a child Latin, what, what? But anyway, uh, to the Jew, but also to the Gentiles, there were prophecies of warning and blessing in the Old Testament. Now, by the time of Jesus, rabbis had overlooked that. They said, those are Gentile dogs, all pagans. Who cares about them? God cared about them. And we find prophecies in Isaiah. One of them says, the islands await you. Was that talking about the British Isles? America? It follows the same pattern of all the other prophets. Reminder of blessing, like God said, I took you out of Egypt, gave you my law, the prophets, covenants, land flowing with milk and honey, but then always rebuke of their sin, especially idolatry, and the threat of punishment, and then the promise of blessing and restoration. There is a pattern over and over again. To the pagans, just like Jonah, but a few others, such as Obadiah, who prophesied to Edom, but most of the Old Testament prophecies are addressed to the Jewish people. Now, a few weeks ago, we finished our long series on Zechariah. And remember, I kept reminding you, his unusual imagery in the visions are what's called apocalyptic language. Highly symbolic with beasts and goats with different horns and things like this. Not to be taken literally, but this was symbolic dreams, apocalyptic literature, we call that. You find that in Zechariah, Ezekiel, Revelation, and Daniel, but not in Isaiah. Occasionally he'll use a colorful figure of speech, but not, you know, these visions of beasts with ten horns and things like that, and goats attacking. No, it's, it's a little bit more straightforward. Let's draw to a conclusion. Why study Isaiah? 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired and is profitable for teaching. And if it's profitable for teaching, it's profitable for learning. All scripture is to be believed and obeyed and studied. And this book was relevant not just to the people to whom Isaiah prophesied and to the Jews that followed, it's beneficial to us. All scripture is profitable to us. In fact, I was thinking of that verse, hold on, uh, Romans 15.4 refers to the Old Testament books and says these things were written for our benefit that we might take patience and encouragement from them. So we can take a lot of encouragement from Isaiah. These, and by the way, even some rebukes, but also promises. It was relevant to them then, but also to us 
today. Lastly, one more illustration. I still remember when I got saved, and I mentioned that in the morning message, May 10th, 1972. I remember I started reading the Bible all the way through, and just a few months after I got saved, I came to Isaiah, and I read it through in one sitting. I just could not put it down. I said, oh, this is terrific. Have you ever read through a book of the Bible in one setting, even the second longest book in the Bible? Psalms would take a few more hours, but try it. Have you ever read through Isaiah? Have you ever read through the whole Bible? You can do it, and you should do it. And that's our introduction to the Gospel of Isaiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Isaiah and inspiring him to write down your holy words that are infallible. The prophecies came to pass, and they're applicable to us. Help us as we study this week by week. Feed our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.